Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of the Daily Friends Show. I am your host, Nicholas Larimer, today joined by Mr. Mlondi Mluli. Mlondi, how are you doing? Good afternoon, Nick. Um, good and you? I'm pretty good. Uh, I do apologize if anyone can hear my fan. I would turn it off, but then I may expire from heat exhaustion halfway through the show. I'm also joined today by Mr. Herman Pretorius. Herman, how are you? Hi, no, I'm well. I thought when you said you apologize for being joined by your fan, you were referring to your mother being in the room. But um, if it's if it if it's just mechanics to keep you sort of at a at a useful temperature, I'm fine. Uh, (laughs) Wouldn't that be nice if I had a swarm of adoring fans on the side here? But no, instead, I just have a dusty fan. That has to power me through talking about South Africa's many wild and wacky stories. Uh, speaking of which, let us get into our first story. And that is a report that has, uh, from Treasury about just how much money the various state-owned enterprises are losing. So government has spent a lot of money bailing out a couple of the state-owned enterprises. ESCOM is receiving a bailout of 265 billion rand over three years. And it recorded a loss of 7.5 billion rand in the nine months uh, between April and December, which is, um, I believe, the technical term for that is not lacquer. The Land Bank, which has uh, defaulted on its debt since 2020, recorded a 97 million rand loss um, in the last couple of years. Even though it was budgeted to make a very small profit, the post office, despite being in business rescue, is accumulating a loss of around 1 billion rand from end of April to December. SAA, which has been resurrected like a phoenix and also budgeted to make a profit this financial year, has instead made a loss of 776 million rand. Um, The group's revenue was 26% less than budget. And Danel, which was given a 3.3 billion rand bailout in 2022, lost 463 million rand uh, um, by the end of December they were only budgeted to lose 339 million so uh, ironically that one is actually probably the best of the state-owned enterprises but um, Londi let me start with you Um, you look at something like this and you really do wonder can the government even consider keeping the sort of state-owned enterprises going forward we are reaching a point now where this is beginning to seriously impact the national fiscus and I mean the ANC has this ideological love of state-owned enterprises but you look at numbers like these and you think Ooh, I, don't, I think reality may force a decision at some point sooner rather than later what do you make of this yes Nick thank you for the question well I do agree that you know that that things at these at these SOEs are not going to get better anytime soon the government needs to privatize, but no, they won't listen. You know, like it's damaging our fiscus. And I can carry it to you now, like in the budget speech, the Minister of Finance will, will most probably uh, announce that these SOEs will be getting bailouts again, uh, which is you know, a really bad thing, you know, considering that we are having like a huge deficit, which translates to a high budget, de- uh, uh, budget debt to fund uh, that deficit. So, you know, it, you know, it, it, it really comes across as you know, that, that the government is doing the same thing over and over again by bailing out these SOEs. But... But uh, you know, but trying to expect the different uh, results 
and it just has proven not to work. You know, we're still getting the same problems. They're still making a loss. Just privatize the damn SOEs. The most baffling continues to be Herman SAA. SAA basically fell apart, but government, despite being in the middle of this sort of a plan to sell it to a kind of sort of private company and then recreate it as a new thing and it's just kind of madness how this is not you know saa is not something that is of huge benefit to anc supporters right yeah sure there's some people who get jobs from it um but for the most part it's really just this huge drain on the fiscus that the anc could be plowing into all sorts of other things that might be popular for example you know increased grants and yet it gets bailed out again and again and again and nothing changes as as Mlondi said you know it's it's losing uh, a huge amount of money even though it was supposed to be making money this year what do you make of these stats well people always say that the ANC is divided into two factions and that's right but the problem is people get the factions wrong it's not the RET faction the men, the Zumaites, the Mashatiles, and the Zumas, and the Eshmagashules of the world, versus the good guys, the Ramaphosaites. That's not really the situation. The situation is far simpler. The ANC is divided into two factions, the communists and the kleptocrats. There are people who want to take your money and spend it on your behalf, because they believe it will bring about socialist utopia, according to their unshakable faith in the National Democratic Revolution. And then there are some people who just want to take your money and spend it to their own benefit. Smithson Gonyama famously said, I think he was director of communications for the ANC in the late 1990s, he didn't participate in the struggle to be poor. Well, I think that reveals a lot. So whether the ANC, when you're dealing with a true dyed-in-the-wool communist like Ibrahim Patel, he still has this faith in state-owned entities because, you know, the great Lenin in the sky will make sure it benefits the workers of all mankind. But on the other side, you also have support for SOEs, not because of any belief in the great Lenin in the sky, but because it is a patronage network. And if there's one thing that remains consistent within the ANC, it is that it is driven through its reliance on a patronage network that cuts all the way from the most basic services being delivered at local government level all the way to the top to something like an SOE. This is why Transnet can, for breathalyzer straws that are worth 28 cents, pay 28 rand, a markup of 10 thousand percent because it's a patronage network it is an excuse to get money and we're in budget month and londi mentions the drain on the fiscus the problem fundamentally here is that people misunderstand what corruption is corruption isn't having the wrong people in power corruption is having the wrong people in power who are unaccountable and having too much money in the hands of those people. The best way to fight corruption in South Africa consists of two very simple steps. Tax cuts, so that the government cannot get its money on the people who work hard to be productive and value-add to the economy. And the other part is a voucher system for education, healthcare, and housing. 
to make sure that the state resources that are generated fairly, I think, to the benefit and to the satisfaction in principle of all South Africans are actually spent by the people who will benefit from the spending of those resources. Because what we have a situation here in the SOE bailouts is it is that money being spent on behalf of people who cannot benefit from the spending taxed from people who won't benefit from the spending in the first place. So whether it's an ideological commitment to thinking the state centralization is the way to a utopia, or whether it is just our turn to eat, the appetite, the ANC appetite for an SOE is insatiable. Why? Because it ensures ideological or patronage consistency. And if we really want to get a grip on these bailouts, yes, we should stop them. But when you're in a situation where someone is unable to spend money, they should get less money to spend. And if we look at these SOEs, some of them costing us hundreds of billions of rands, it starts explaining why every day the South African government borrows more than a billion rand every day to cover basic expenditure. And that is the problem here. Whether you're the ideological supporter or whether you are just waiting for your turn at the trough, the SOE is the drug for you because it is always happy to satisfy both factions in the ANC. Right. This is a, a point that comes up again and again. I think um, it's very easy for political co uh, uh, commentators and things to, to criticize uh, corruption because, you know, no one is for corruption. And it's like a way of criticizing the, uh, the state or the government without having to get into a sort of ideological tussle or be too direct at, uh, at attacking the ANC or their or their uh, partners. Um, and so a lot of business leaders and NGOs and things that don't really want to make an ever enemy of the government always go down that route. They talk about corruption, this, corruption, that. But as, as you kind of just explained there, Herman, this is a feature of the system that's been created, not a bug. It's not some random occurrence. When you centralize all the power and all the money spending and all the decision making behind closed doors in the hands of politicians, the temptation to steal is going to be immense. Now, there are levels of stealing, right? If you... Uh, some countries like the China, China, there's an enormous amount of corruption, but they still build the highway. <laughs> In South Africa, we're increasingly getting to that stage where corruption has gotten so bad that um, uh, they don't even build the highway. Um, Nandi, what do you make of this? Uh, of this kind of a corruption is is a is a feature, not a bug thing. And, and do you have anything to add to before we move on to the next topic? Yes, Nick. Uh, I agree that uh, corruption is a feature within the government, and that's why we need change. You know, we need change. We see in different provinces that that are governed by the ANC and how things are working. So, you know, we can't expect, as uh, Herman said, you know, there's two factions: there's the Liberal and there's the Socialists, and you can't expect them to be different. You know, they they all have the same goal, and that is to steal, 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 and steal. So, uh, things will not change for as long as they're in power, and then yeah. So, you know. Corruption is a rooted uh, in them, as we've seen. Uh, and you know, uh, you know, you know, like uh, the ANC always now says, "Look, like we've uh, tackled a, a state capture," but I mean, there's still corruption that's going around. And and also, like to emphasize, they haven't really tackled, a, a, you know, state capture. How many people have been arrested? How many people have been convicted? You know, you know, to be more specific. So corruption is still pretty much there. It's just that they choose the last half phase, but corruption is there. And corruption, exactly. according South Africa's corruption ranking has worsened 
we are now at our worst corruption ranking in our history. The best, ironically, the best corruption rating happened in 1996. So it is post-apartheid. We shouldn't delude ourselves to think that, you know, uh, there wasn't positive development after 1994. There undoubtedly was, 1996 being the year when we scored highest on whether on our corruption score according to accountability now is something worth remembering. And we don't have to make it an issue about the ANC. If we go back to the Zafrikaans Republic, the ZAR under Paul Creer, he had his fair share of corruption. Why? Because you had the key ingredients of massive amounts of money spent by unaccountable people. If you want to end corruption, those are the two points you target. Exactly. Uh, the, the, the socialism is the cause of, of the corruption, not, uh, not the other way around. Okay, um, let us move on to our next topic. And I don't know, this is more, I guess, a discussion about the, some, some, anal- uh, some analysis in the, in, the, in the media, in the mainstream, which just makes me want to sort of uh, bang my head against the wall. So, I think it's uh, it's so let me let, let me just lay out what this piece said. So I think it was an eye, uh, eyewitness news piece, and it said ahead of its manifesto launch, the DA is facing similar challenges to ANC analysts. And the piece talks a little bit; it's not very detailed, but it just says that some political analysts believe that the DA is facing uh, struggles similar to those of the ANC, that it has, according to one uh, political analyst. Um, the uh, the DA is vulnerable and has limited aspirations. It hasn't been able to make, break into a bigger market. Um, it was too easy to talk about the weaknesses of the governing party, but the DA had lots to worry about too. They cannot be comfortable in terms of their governing presence and footprint in the Western Cape. And this is part of a general narrative that's out there, that the DA is set to get hammered this election. And whenever Ipsos releases a poll, this narrative really comes back into the focus. And it is so frustrating to me because the DA definitely has problems, right? They are facing a major challenge from the PA uh, in the Western Cape in particular, but also in other parts of the country. They are uh, uh, Their leader is not particularly well known. Um, while he doesn't have a great favorability rating, the vast majority of South Africans, I think more than 50%, don't even know who he is. Uh, they have you know, their own scandals and corruptions and infighting and all those kind of things that are definitely worth criticizing and looking at and, and examining. But the idea that there's this sort of grand downward spiral of doom and uh, a so-called, uh, what's the phrase that they always use in the media, the black exodus of leaders from the DA, and that this is a party in complete collapse. I would like to see some data to support that. I'm just looking at the last couple of polls. Almost all of them, except the Ipsos poll, who have traditionally underpolled the DA, generally see the party doing either slightly better or much better than it did in the previous election. Herman, let me start with you. What do you make of all this? Well, it, it's just unserious. It is, it is fundamentally lightweight journalism. And it's annoying because South Africans really should be able to expect more from our political reporters. But to look at the opinion polls, <clears throat> each one of them, with the exception of Ipsos, 
showing the DA either stabilizing its vote, growing by a little or growing by a lot, it really is something of a stretch to come to the conclusion that this is a party with the same levels of crisis where the ANC is at the risk of dropping 10 percentage points between the last national election and this one. The current polls put them in the high mid-40s. In the last national election, uh, uh, local, uh, not local, provincial and national, the ANC got 57% of the vote. They are polling 10 percentage points lower. That is an incredible amount. And yet the party that is either stable or growing, no, same thing, same sort of. And what annoys me about this is that there's so much to criticize in the DA, especially from uh, over the last 10 years from a classical liberal perspective. Their flirtation with multiracialism over non-racialism was a fundamental mistake. It just seems to be writing itself now. And I must say, I was very impressed by uh, the DA's policy framework that they set out a week or two ago for their first 100 days in office. Good stuff. They said the P word. They said privatization, as Nandi was saying in our first topic. But I want to end my response with a little conversation I once had with a senior and a very respected SABC journalist who said, no, the, the, white, the, 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 the black exodus out of the, the, the DA. And I, I said, but what about the white exodus? And he said, what do you mean? I say, what about Ethel Trollope and Paul Bowie and Michael Beaumont? I mean, are we, are we just going to racially discriminate on the people who left the DA? Surely. If the problem is that the DAA keeps on losing people, is it possible that we can at least be non-racial in their failures? But they can't even do that. This is a party that is consistently in a country uh, with a 90, I can't, I'm not sure what the exact figure is, 90% of our voters are black South Africans. If only black South Africans voted, then it would be a very tight race between the EFF and the DA for who would be the official opposition. That is to indicate that even if earning the black vote was the sole perspective, the sole glory bullet, the silver bullet of what would cure politics, rather than solutions that would benefit everyone, irrespective of their race, why is a party like the ACDP that has always had a black leader doing so badly? The idea that the DA has the same level of problems as the ANC is so ridiculous that I only have to ask how on earth the many political assassinations that must be happening in the DA, because it's at the same level of problems as the ANC, how the DA has managed to hush that up. Because if the ANC and the DA are at the same level of crisis, my word, there are a few political murders going unreported. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Um, Londi, it what always strikes me when I read this is that it really seems like quite a lot of these analysts and usually the worst offenders, although not always, are, are academics. But, you know, not always. I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush here. Uh, it sort of seems to be the, the attitude is rather than looking at polls, rather than looking at by-election results, things like that. And, you know, you can find some evidence for the DA not doing so well in by-election results. The kind of 
a lot of the analysis that makes it into the the political commentary seems to be kind of um, I don't know how to describe it except vibes based. It's like, uh, you know, me and my friends think that John Steenhuisen is a bad leader. So, you know, we think the DA is going to do badly this time. What? Yeah, true, Nick. I absolutely agree with you. You know, I just think that it was a slow, a new day for EWN, and they were like, let's start something just to get people's attention. And I think that's just one of the, you know, them, like, you know, that's one of the articles that was written. But I mean, look, uh, historically, you'll know that the DA and the media, like, I mean, like, the media has really, really, really viewed the, the DA like in high regard. You know, they always try to find that negative thing to write about the DA. It's never positive. You know, it's very rare to find parts of, you know, a news of the DA. Like, yes, they are there, but I mean, it's very rare. So this isn't really surprising considering that we are going to an election this year. So, I mean, it's all things that shouldn't be, uh, no, a uh, no to, the, but yeah. But I mean, like the polls, uh, have uh, said one thing, as you said, Nick, they say that the DA is either going to grow, uh, no, but slightly or by a large margin. Show, yeah. So I mean, surely, like all polls can't say the same thing, you know. So it shows that the DA is doing something right and they're growing. So there's nothing to be worried about. Um, I think they they probably are going to have to fight a probably a different campaign to the one they fought before. Um, the environment is changing, and there's so you know there's so many pieces in play at the moment. I think this is a very different electoral landscape from what they've ever had to face before. Uh, with the ANC weakening, but then you've got parties like MK and the, the EFF sort of eating up pieces of the ANC. But then you've also got uh, new opposition parties like Action SA, Build One SA, Rise Mzanzi, uh and the PA all sort of um, kind of struggling for that anti-ANC vote as well. So I think uh, things could still go wrong for them in this election. But so far, you know, just saying, oh, we don't like how right-wing John Steenhuisen is, is not a particularly uh, uh, thoughtful or inventive criticism, uh, uh, thoughtful or informative criticism <laughs> of the DA. Um, Herman, any final thoughts on this? Yes, two things. Number one, go look at the registration stats. A party in crisis does not have the successful voter registration drive. The DA, I think, had two. The November registration drive and the February registration drive seem to indicate that the DA outperformed the ANC. That, it, it, is it a party with problems? Of course, all parties have problems. But it, it's not a party in crisis. And number two... The DA has a challenge, fundamentally, that I think it fails to change the narrative of this crisis mode for two reasons. That there is a baked-in media bias in South Africa. This South African media sphere has been, over multi-generations, been shaped by the journalistic instinct to, I think, see justice done. And under apartheid, that meant you were aligned with the ANC. But where the IRR, and I think especially someone like John Ken Berman, really show what true liberal courage is, it is to keep being critical of the people who stood alongside you against apartheid when they are in government. So I think there's a hangover of a pro-ANC bias. But the second problem is, politics ultimately boil down to two questions in an election. Does the candidate or the party share my values? 
And do they care about someone like me? If you look throughout elections across the world where it's about those two questions, the party winning those two questions will win the election. And where the DA often fails, and we as a think tank on the same sort of proximate ideological space, where we also might be failing, is not to assume that the right argument, the right policy, cuts to that core question of does this person share my values and do they care about me? That is a place where the DA can definitely improve. Okay, let us move on to our next story now. And this is a fun little story to end off the show for today and for this week. The city power in Johannesburg has gotten a little bit of a win, a small win, but it's, uh, I think, a win that's kind of illustrative of the larger problems with infrastructure in the city. So City Power received a tip-off. There was a hardware store in Lanasia South that allegedly had some of their equipment that they were using. So City Power sent some people along with the police to investigate and to find out what exactly was going on. Upon entering the store, they found that there was a mini substation worth more than 900,000 rand illegally installed in the back of this hardware store. This particular one, they knew from the the numbers on it, um, had been ordered by City Power and was in their depot 10 years ago and has apparently been in this hardware store since it disappeared from straight from the depot in 2014. Uh, City Power also found that the, uh, the the thing was not only powering the hardware store, but a small brick-making factory at the back of the property. And they also found that it was illegally connected to the grid via, via a kilometer-long cable. Um, the owner simply claimed that uh, he had applied for a three-phase connection to his property, and he thought that this was it, which is <laughs> quite laughable. Um, but the uh, the City Power media liaison said, they didn't know how this property went missing and that they really, you know, maybe think that it might be time to look into whether there was some inside help on this. Let me save City Power a little bit of uh, trouble on that one. It was definitely inside help on the stealing of this thing. Uh, Firstly, it disappeared from the depot. It wasn't stolen from the street. And secondly, it was clearly professionally installed to be able to hook into the grid using a kilometer-long cable. Like, an ordinary electrician might, in theory, know how to do that, but he's probably not going to do that because it's dangerous and complicated and <laughs> much more difficult than usual. So this is, I think, emblematic of so much of the infrastructure theft and chaos and corruption that takes place within municipal entities across the country um, when it comes to the delivery of services. Uh, Herman, what do you make of this? Well, I I must say that that it, it, this is a great story. It's a wonderful story because number one, stealing a substation, I mean that's it's not a chappy. It it, it, it this isn't shoplifting. It's substation lifting. It's uh, well, it, that would be if shoplifting meant actually stealing a shop. Impressive stuff. Never let people say South Africans lack skills. We can steal substations. And secondly, we can lay kilometer-long cables without anyone realizing it. That is, that is, you know, covert skills Mossad will pay massive amounts of money for. So I'm impressed. But the last thing I do want to say on a serious note is this is what happens when accountability 
just disappears. And I think part of the problem here is, and this is perhaps a conversation for another day, as long as a city insources so many functions that could be done by private sector actors that must compete and deliver and ensure that the promised tender benefits or contract deliveries materialize. Instead of that competition-based, merit-based market, insourcing leads to a situation where people who dig holes to cover a pipe earn more than 10,000 rand a month. That is the level of salary negotiated on a country basis for municipal workers. If you pay people too much and you remove the element of healthy merit-based competition, don't be surprised when you accidentally find a substation not where you saw it last time. So Mlondi, you know, reading through the story, I do actually wonder whether there was even a theft at all or whether he just paid a city power official, maybe even the depot manager to deliver this thing to his house and install, uh, to his shop and install it for him. Um, do you have any thoughts on this rather bizarre uh, episode? Yeah, well, I can say that this really reflects the true state of the country. You know, there's no, there's no law and order and people just do whatever they do because, I mean, like the government is doing it, so why can't they also steal? So it just shows the, you know, like the real state of the country and how things have deteriorated. So we need to do better in terms of law and order, and that starts with the governments. You know, they, they need to follow the law before they expect the citizens to follow the law. But, I mean, it's really concerning that, you know, it, it has reached to such an extent. You know, it's really terrible, and it shouldn't be celebrated. But, I mean, the government's doing it, and... You know, uh, people are saying if they're doing it, then why can't I do it? So it's very terrible. But yeah, that's what I have to say. We need change. Yeah, I think I think that's very true. Um, you know, you don't get to a state where people are doing this, doing infrastructure installation on a <laughs> on like a suburb scale um, without the government mm. uh, having perhaps let law and order slip a little bit. I mean, I'm anyway. impressed. I'm impressed that for two or three hundred rand, I can buy a cable that I can plug my electric lawnmower into. I didn't know kilometer cables were available sort of in a setting where you could just install it. Why did no one just go, there's a multi-plug? Why is there a multi-plug every 10 meters from this specific hardware store? I, I, I just love it. Never changed. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that was how they figured out that the thing was there. After all, they did get this tip <laughs> off. Um, but anyway, that's all, the, that's all the time we have for today. We hope you found the show interesting. And I hope you all have a wonderful weekend. See you all next week. Cheers, everyone. <laughs>